What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The information economy has arrived. The world is teeming with innovation as new business models reinvent every industry. Every industry. Inside Analysis is your source of information and insight about how to make the most of this exciting new era. Learn more at InsideAnalysis.com. InsideAnalysis.com. And now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome once again to the only coast-to-coast radio show in the U.S. today that's all about the information economy. It's time for Inside Analysis. You're truly Eric Cavanaugh here. Uh, And folks, I've got a great show lined up for you today, really all about education and uh, understanding internet infrastructure. So I've got a gentleman, Christian Dawson, with us. Uh, He heads up the Internet Infrastructure Coalition, or with the I2 Coalition, as they call it. And they're doing some outreach to really get some feedback from folks and talk about becoming responsible denizens of the interwebs. It's all about the careful and thoughtful collection of data and what we can do to encourage good actors, basically, what we could do to encourage good behavior. So with that, uh, Christian, good behavior and the Internet don't always go hand in hand. Uh, That's true. (laughs) You folks are out there (laughs) trying to do some good things. I saw the email that came across from your team, and I loved it because I think all the time about data collection and what's being done with that data, who owns that data, what can they use with that data. And of course, in in Europe, you've got GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that has some limits on that sort of thing. California has the CCPA. Other states, I heard there are, I think, 23 or 24, maybe more states that have now passed some form of these privacy laws or or regulations around these topics. So it's important. It's an ethical conversation. And I think you guys are are really on to something. So tell us, first of all, what is the I2 Coalition? What are you doing? and, uh, And how can we help? Uh, Eric, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be able to be a, be a guest on your show today and to talk a little bit about what we're working on. Uh, yeah, I will start by talking a little bit about what the I2 Coalition is. I2 Coalition stands for Internet Infrastructure Coalition. And if you want to be sort of really glib and direct about what we do, uh, we uh, our goal is to teach legislators and regulators how the Internet works so they don't do stupid stuff to mess it up. Mm-hmm sort of what people don't realize about the internet is you often think of the internet as being made up of the major platforms, your local ISP and a few other ISPs like it, that, you know, Apple, Microsoft, a few other companies, and that's it. But it's honestly, when you think about, uh, if if you know a little bit about how the internet actually operates, you realize that it it is a connection of a series of small businesses, small to medium sized businesses, who interoperate in data centers. We mm-hmm. talk about data centers all the time here. Uh, and we need to make sure that the ecosystem that exists of these small businesses continues to be able to uh, survive and thrive. So mm-hmm. our job is to try and be a collective voice of the internet infrastructure industry and to teach legislators and regulators that it's there and what our need its needs are to continue to grow on the open internet. But, uh, you know, that is predicated on the idea that the things that are happening on the internet are predominantly good and Mm -hmm. that's not always the case Mm -hmm. so we have a member organization of 120 member companies or so uh, for whom we do advocacy for whom we do education about how the internet works and when we talk to legislators and regulators usually when they are talking about the internet they're trying to solve problems which you know is great We, we need more legislators who are trying to actively solve problems um earnestly um we need to make sure as an industry we're taking on the hard topics that allow us to figure out how we as an industry can be better mm-hmm. so we've done projects in the past for instance we worked with most of the major vpn providers to build a project called the vpn trust initiative where those major vpn providers decided to adopt a set of principles um, for which they would hold themselves accountable 
hmm. to make sure that they were, you know, they were all in agreement as to what ethical behavior looked like in the VPN industry. Hmm. It also made it easier for us to be advocates for the VPN industry because we could basically say, okay, we're being advocates for the industry above this bar. We want you to know about the good that the, the industry does, but only if they're operating above this bar, you know? Interesting. So the project yeah. we're working on right now is called the Ethical Web Data Initiative. Mm -hmm. and, and like you said at the top of the show, there's lots of questions about data collection. You know, it's something that we deal with on a daily basis. We know our data is being collected. We know that it's being used by companies. Um, we know that we feel like we should have sort of more control and more agency over that process. Mm -hmm. So how can we as an industry do the same kind of work that I was just talking about with the VPNs and try to get collective buy-in from the people who are doing that kind of work mm -hmm. on on what ethical behavior looks like yeah and that's i mean i love this so there's a comment period now and there's a google doc yeah. that we sent out to our database and folks can go get access to this document and throw their opinions in basically do you want to talk about some of the questions you're asking and you know really the the the, the crux of the argument here is we're trying to foster good, responsible behavior, transparent behavior, come up with some policies, some standards that we can all accept and get people to buy into that so that it's not the Wild West, because it is the Wild West still with in terms of data collection in the yeah. U.S. I mean, it's a huge business now of purchasing consumer data, reselling it, using it for targeting of ads and all these kinds of things. And of course, in GDPR, you have to come up with your own plan, your own solution. But you, basically, you have to explain why you're collecting the data, what you're going to use it for, and then only use it for what you said you're going to use it for. Right. And, you know, that is that is a constraint. And it's a constraint uh, for lots of different reasons, one of which is because, you know, you need to have policies in an organization and then some mechanism to enforce those policies. And where do you enforce those mechanisms? Is it in the apps? Is it at the data level? I mean, there are lots of ways that you can do that stuff, but, you know, it's not going to be uniform. Right. That's the key. And I think That's GDPR right. understood that. So I'm guessing that you uh, have a similar feeling. Right. Uh, we definitely do. I think one of the most important things to point out about the work that we've presented uh, is that uh, this first set of principles on which we are sort of seeking feedback is is work that I2 Coalition has coordinated gathering, but they've come from the companies that do data collection and that are part of the data collection ecosystem. So you're talking about the companies that are actually uh, gathering data. The term web scraper is mm -hmm. used a lot, mm -hmm. oftentimes in a negative context and mm -hmm. oftentimes understandably in a negative context. Some of the companies that are that that uh, we're, we've been working with on these principles fall into what would be considered a, 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 a web scraper category of company. And they're looking at those types of things about the kinds of questions that are hit upon with uh, with GDPR and a lot more and they're saying, hey, how can we, um, as a um, as a series of companies, um, make guarantees to the people uh, within the internet ecosystem that show them that we're attempting to behave ethically? Some of those companies, um, like for example, you use data that those companies collect on a daily basis. For instance, if you're looking for a flight, you know, and you're trying to figure out what the cheapest flight is, mm -hmm. you're working with a company that's collected data from public sources in order to provide right. with that data, right? Right, sure. It, it's different than the kind of thing that people think about in the in the sort of outlier cases of really nefarious use of data collection. So they're, so they're saying, okay, so how can we set up kinds of principles that we want everybody to follow? Um, so they put out this document, um, this set of guiding principles that they came up with. It's their 1.0 document, and you can find it on ethicalwebdata.com. Um, it breaks down the things, the commitments that they want to make to to the internet ecosystem, to the users, along four grounds: legality, ethics, social responsibility, and ecosystem management. And you can read all that stuff right there. Legality is the one that I'll speak to like most directly because it speaks to what it is you're talking about with GDPR. Making sure that you're doing data collection in, in accordance with the law is the first and foremost like you, a bar that you absolutely need to make sure that you're above to be really direct. Like if you're not collecting data that you're supposed to be collecting, it's not 
you know, it's not web scraping, it's hacking, right? <laughs> um, so, so basically they've gone ahead and we've helped them uh, do the coordination and bringing everybody to a rough consensus, but they've collected and published these draft um, ethical web data principles. And then the public comment period is to go out there and try to field test them with everybody and say, hey, is this enough? Do you want more from us? Um, the, the goal, I think, is to come up with a 2.0 version of this that isn't just coming from industry, but that's a collaboration between industry and the rest of the internet ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Like they're looking for people to hold their feet to the fire now. They're looking yeah. for people to, to challenge them to go further or to tell them where their blind spots are from, from their lens so that they can really put their best foot forward on trying to sort of help this industry go from the Wild West to where it does have a reputation that understands that there are people above a bar and below a bar and that they've done a little bit of work to substantiate what the bar is. Yeah, I, I mean, you see a lot of these principles reflected in other conversations around the world right now, stuff like ESG, right? Yep. Same kind of concept. We're trying to come up with uh, a baseline to understand what is ethical behavior, right? Because as one of my friends would always joke, just because it's ethical, you know, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical, right? I mean, there are legal boundaries and then there are ethical boundaries and those do change over time. And of course they change from one country to the next, right? You have sure. different mores in different cultures and you know, we have to kind of respect that around the world. But I, I do think this is very important because you're instigating the conversation and you've got enough parties at the table to have a real meaningful conversation about this and come up with guidelines because you know what? it is a challenge to define policies around these sorts of activities. And then, you know, again, it gets back to the execution side, which also is, is very topographically challenging, I'll say, because you, but, but if you have the principles, if you articulate the principles and you educate people, and that's probably half the battle right there, right? And then you have to put your, your processes in place for dealing with these things. But just having the conversation begins that process and it, it helps people, I think, appreciate and understand why it's important to have these rules, right? I think you're right. Uh, where we are in our conversation right now is we're trying to get more people to the table. Mm -hmm. Our 1.0 principles is not one of those things where industry is saying like, okay, we're done patting ourselves on the back for a job well done and saying we're good, we're ethical now. We're starting a conversation that we need other people to come back and say, okay, how do we, how do we uh, as a society, look at uh, what it is this industry, you know, wants to hold itself accountable for, and and how do we, um, you know, push them, encourage them uh, to adapt, to think about things over time, and then we need to figure out a process where, and then they can keep doing that. Because you're right, it does change over time, and we expect different things of our companies today than we did five years ago. We'll expect yeah. different things of our companies in five years than we do now, um, and so how do we can, how do we build a process? that has that, um, how, do, how do we build a process that is adaptive and nimble that doesn't require a whole bunch of regulation? Because the hard thing to do is to try to accomplish this, not from an industry perspective, but from the perspective of you know local and regional and national laws across the world, <laughs> where everybody's got a different take on what the, what the answer should be. That's right. And you know, I'm gonna I'm reading this document right now. It's uh, the Ethical Web Data Collection Initiative, and uh, folks on our website, we will put a link to this so you can take a look at the document and offer your take on it. There's one that stands out to me just because I've written about this somewhat extensively: alternative data for investment decision making. So after this show, I'll send you a link to an article I wrote a few years ago when I was really getting into alternative data, and when I realized that how how far along that industry is and i'll just kind of explain it in this context i came up with this concept i call it outsider trading mm -hmm. right so there's insider trading which is when someone in a, an executive position or just happens to have inside information about some big deal that's going to affect the stock price and they act on that which is illegal because you have to the information has to be public so you have quiet periods and things of this nature well, I realized that there is so much data collection, like writ large, that big companies like, let's say, investment banks will buy data on 
credit card transactions for certain brands like Target or Walmart or these other places. And the point is they have data science teams who have a baseline now to understand what all that means. And even though they can't track cash, I think they can also track debit cards, but certainly credit card data, exhausted, they call it. What that means is that a handful of institutions can tell you with great certainty which companies will meet or beat market expectations in the stock market. Well, if you can predict who's going to beat market expectations 95% of the time, how are you going to lose? Right. And the example I give is, let's say four of us are playing cards at my house. We're playing poker. The rule is I can see all of your cards, but none of you can see mine. If I lose, I'm an idiot. Right. <laughs> and so right. my suggestion for this, because as we've mentioned, alternative data is being scraped, it's being processed, it's being sold to all kinds of organizations. My thought for a regulation is to say, OK, financial services industry companies in this business, if you're going to sell that data, you must also provide an anonymized version of that data or what I'm calling a consumer data lake such that you could have a, a window through which any investor can go online and see some of this data to understand the trends. That way we're kind of leveling the playing field a bit so it's not just the big investment banks who know who's going to meet or beat market estimates. It's anyone who spends time to do the research. But And I know I'm just kind of throwing this at you, but what do you think about that concept of a consumer-facing anonymized data lake with all this alternative data? I've got a lot of thoughts and 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 the first but the first thing I'll say is that this is a great example of the type of thing that we'd love to see in a public comment even a short little email that says hey have you thought about this talk about this within the group and 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 parse this idea would be extremely valuable the fact is, is that as the leader of the organization that basically runs the coordination group I mean that that's really compelling to me I of course am only uh, the person who is running the team that's trying to drive all of these uh, companies to right. sort of collective uh, a collective decision as to what uh, what they can practically achieve. Um, but I love it. I love having that conversation. I love that bringing that to the group. And it's an example of the kinds of things that I'm hopeful that we can do as we seek to go beyond any of our lenses to the lens of uh, of everybody when they look at how data is used in their daily lives and 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 the kinds of assurances they need to know that uh they're getting a fair shake mm -hmm. <laughs> you know in the process uh, ultimately what i hope is that we can create enough of a groundswell for activities like this and enough of an interaction with different organizations and individuals to help us with this process that we can not only heavily evolve this 1.0 set of principles but turn it into some sort of accreditation program. Wouldn't it be nice oh, yes. to get to a point where like you could, where, where the companies that are, that are, that are providing those data, where the, yes. where there is an environment where like they can sort of have a stamp of approval, a little, a little bit of a thing to say like, Hey, we have abided by, I know, like that behaviors. I like that a lot. Well, folks, don't touch that down. We'll be right back. You are listening to Inside Analysis. What if you could own a piece of the future? What if you could build your next castle, not on sand, but on the bedrock of a modern blockchain ecosystem? The first internet gold rush made millionaires. The second wave is minting billionaires. But the third wave is just gathering now, and anyone can get in on the action. Hop online to crowdpointtech.com to learn how you can secure a foothold in the blockchain revolution. Whatever your passion, wherever you want to go in life, there's an opportunity awaiting you right now. Go to crowdpointtech.com to learn how the blockchain will fuel the next generation of innovation in this globally connected world. That's crowdpointtech.com, your trusted agent in an untrusted world. What's the longest running radio show in the world focused on data? DM Radio. Want to be a guest sometime? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. That's info at dmradio.biz.
Can your IRA stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is at our doorsteps? By allocating a percentage of your IRA into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from turbulent markets and economic downturns by putting your IRA back on the gold standard. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Call now for your free gold and silver report. Protect your IRA today with one simple phone call and learn how to qualify for up to $10,000 in free silver. Call Genesis Gold Group, empowering faith-driven stewardship. 800-644-8611. 800-644-8611. That's 800-644-8611. Hey, travelers, do you want to save money on your next flight? Then pick up the phone and call. That's right, call, because the best prices are not online. They're with SmartFares. See, SmartFares has special deals with the airlines. When they have unsold seats, they use SmartFares to fill them. So you get airline tickets at ridiculously low prices. Our prices are too low to publish online. With the extra money you'll save, you can book another trip or treat yourself to dinner or shopping. So stop searching all of those travel sites to find the lowest price on your next flight. Let one of our SmartFares expert travel agents find ridiculously low prices for you. Call SmartFares today and get the best price on your next flight. Guaranteed. Also, save up to 50% off business and first-class tickets. 855-325-1821. 855-325-1821. That's 855-325-1821. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-289-0413. 800-289-0413. That's 800-289-0413. Welcome back to Inside Analysis. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Take us to the future. All right, folks, back here on Inside Analysis, talking to Christian Dawson of the Internet Infrastructure Coalition, or the I2 Coalition, all about ethics of data collection, the ethical web data collection initiative specifically. And uh, you're trying to get more people to the table now to really understand what is good behavior on the internet in terms of scraping of information i mean now we have uh, these this cookies situation right and every time you go to a website it's like we use cookies do you accept the cookies do you want to <laughs> etc and what's kind of cool is that you know 10 years ago that would have been a real pain in the rear for small companies because they would have to get a developer to go in and adjust the code and do stuff like this. But now with WordPress, with a lot of these cloud platforms, they just bake that stuff in so you can just turn it on off. So it is getting better to do that. You know, one of the things that I always talk about with cloud computing that's really fantastic is that there's so much information that is persisted and saved. Who logged in? When? At what time exactly? What did they do when they were in the system? All this stuff is baked in because that's what you want from infrastructure these days. And so being able to manage that and have policies around that is very possible, right? And if it's it possible, is very then, possible, you know, go ahead. And 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 one of the things that I wanted to point point out there is, uh, you know, I just uh, I just got back from a, a couple of conferences in Europe. Uh, and we talked about GDPR briefly before. I think the GDPR, uh, one of the one of the really positive outcomes from that, uh, I, I think at the end of people adapting their systems to comply with GDPR, you saw a lot more windows asking you uh, for 
um, for your own consent for cookies. And people started to right. have to wrap their mind around what that is. And, and the idea that they were being tracked around the internet. And of course, Apple now has implemented this thing where they we, they, they uh, have apps, you know, can can we track you around the internet or not? You know, choose not to. Right. Um, these are all examples, I think, of the way that industry is adapting, I think in positive ways to engender more trust in an environment where, you know, bad actions and bad actors across the internet have made it so that trust is understandably eroded. So how do you differentiate? You lean into trust, you lean into transparency. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, we mentioned in the break here, I was chatting with Christian that uh, Twitter has just open sourced their algorithm. So the algorithm that runs the engine that determines, you know, how you are, are regarded basically in that ecosystem has been open sourced. And he also open sourced or created transparency around impressions, like how many people saw this tweet or that tweet, which is just brilliant stuff. You know, I was uh, I was complaining to uh, Christian in the break there about web marketing data and just how cattywampus it all is and how varied and uh, and how distorted it is when you throw money at something. Right. And, and, you know, these companies have to have engines to monitor this stuff. I mean, if you're a Facebook or YouTube or Google, these other guys, I mean, what was it when they testified before Congress? The guys from Facebook were like, well, we really don't know where your data is. And uh, we'd have to pull a report from this and that. And you're just like, what are you talking about, man? And part of it is because it grew so fast. And these are heavily distributed systems which are a much different ball game than the old way of having your database connected to your application and that kind of thing. That's very simple. Federated, highly distributed, hyperscale environments are not like that. And yeah. so, you know, I think the key is that, and this is probably what your consortium is also thinking about it and working on to some extent, is, is really understanding from the major cloud providers what does their infrastructure look like? Where could you pull data from? How how could you put some policy in place? All those things are really important to shape the policy and to shape how we act going forward, right? Well, we've we've got a bigger challenge because you said from the major cloud providers, and 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 there's one level le layer, one additional layer of complication that we take on, hmm. because I don't want to just try and address those types of things for the major cloud providers, because back when things first got created, it was an environment where people were starting uh, companies in their basements, in their dorm rooms, in the middle of nowhere, and they were tiny businesses that grew. Uh, I want to figure out how we can solve these problems while still maintaining the ability for people to start companies in the middle of nowhere, to start them right. as tiny startups that aren't hugely funded. Right. So how do we do this while also making sort of policy decisions that scale down? You know, we can we can it, it would be so much easier to deal with something like a content moderation law. Right. If we only needed it to focus on what was possible for Twitter and YouTube and Google. Right. But the fact is that the world isn't like that. Right. The, you know, the, the cloud providers, all of all of the hosting infrastructure, anybody who has content stored anywhere uh, needs to be able to operate in the same environment. So all of those things that we need to figure out how we as an industry are going to collectively do, uh, they need to work for not only the major players, but the small ones too. That That's great to hear because you're correct. I mean, this is the challenge of regulation. And this is why, you know, for example, with CCPA and GDPR, it only affects companies of a certain size. So, you know, they're being realistic about it and facing the fact that a small three-person company is not going to have the wherewithal to be able to to deal with this. So what you want is for the bigger folks to to embrace these policies and to embed these policies and, and do something about it. And, you know, there, there's also this whole issue around AI and what AI can get access to and what AI can do. Should you be required to report these kinds of things? I mean, personally, I mean, you talk about legislation. I'll just kind of throw this out there as, as food for thought, and I'll try to put this into, you know, my commentary as well. You know, when you think about what AI can do, I think we need transparency of algorithms. I mean, you, you see it certainly in financial services and also in healthcare, what they call explainability, right? You have to be able to explain how your AI engine came up with this particular answer. Well, in the old days, it was what they call black box. 
meaning XYZ Corporation that gave you this engine, they know how it works, but you don't and no one else is going to find out, right? And I even asked ChatGPT the other day, I said, what database do you use? And it wouldn't tell me, <laughs> right? It's like, well, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that we use a whole battering of this and that or whatever. And uh, you know, from a proprietary perspective, I understand that you know this may be your secret sauce. You don't want to reveal it. But if you're going to unleash this technology on the world and have it throwing all these answers out of people and all this stuff, then I think explainability is absolutely paramount. I think we need to have transparency of algorithms. But what do you, what do you think about all that? I think explainability is extremely important to in, to engender trust. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true. It's, ter it's true in our terms of service. It's true in a lot of the things that we do. Algorithms is one where it absolutely uh, will help. Algorithms are also more pervasive than a lot of people think. Uh, one of the things are in 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 the internet infrastructure's role of doing policy advocacy. We recently took on an amicus brief for the Google versus Gonzalez uh, okay. Supreme Court case, uh, and in that conversation, we spent a little bit of time talking about algorithms because at, at heart of that is whether uh, basically the protections that Google got went away if an algorithm was doing it instead of a human. Uh, you know, the fact is that a, like an algorithm can be as simple as a spam filter or a or or something that uh, alphabetizes, right? The, you know, the, a list right. on a website, right? Some right. of them are incredibly simple. They're they're in everything that we do. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's, the challenges are infinite, uh, which only means that the work that we're doing to try and uh, engender trust is even more important. Yeah, and I really like that mission, you know, uh, and uh, so I, I've got all sorts of ideas about legislation and how to kind of address some of these things. And, you know, for example, we heard here in the States, uh, and I was part of the chorus of complainants, if you will, that uh, we have laws that are 4,000 pages long that you have to vote on and you don't have time to read it. I mean, that's just ridiculous, it seems to me. But what's going to happen here soon, I promise you, is that you'll be able to take a 4,000 page law feed it into something like ChatGPT and say, give me a 2,000 word summation of what this actually says. Now, that you know, we have to be careful because yeah. it might not be completely accurate. You just have to go in there and kind of dot I's and cross T's yourself. But the point is this stuff is happening right now. And what I think is, is very fascinating is that it is absolutely possible to have very sophisticated policies that you then implement at an infrastructure level, which will govern. I mean, you, you look at uh, DLP, right, data loss protection technology, where it's if you're emailing someone and there's a credit card number in there, a DLP engine go, nope, nope, you can't do that. That looks like a credit card information. I'm going to block that. Right. Well, that's in there for safety purposes. Right now, it also forms a bit of a constraint. Now I have to find some other way to send that information, you know, with encryption or whatever the case may be. But the point is that you really can have very sophisticated policies now that can be implemented either in a web portal or, you know, at, at some network level in the organization to to achieve this goal that we're talking about right christian i, I think that that's absolutely true I, hey you know i i welcome being able to do more parsing on things like uh, uh chat gpt uh to try and figure out how to to not only do that type of to, to get to those levels of sophistication but where how we could possibly use it to identify possible areas of unintended consequences because hmm. oftentimes when we do our policy work which is again a little bit apart from what I'm here to talk about today, which isn't focused on policy, but about how industry is working together to make industry better, safer, more trusted. Um, but when we when we do uh, advocacy on policy issues, oftentimes we find that somebody will, you know, I'm pulling the name Facebook out of a hat. We'll try to put together a law to 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 address something that is happening on Facebook, uh, and propose something that they don't realize will also negatively affect libraries and universities right. and all sorts of organizations right. for which there are unintended consequences of trying to approach the problem that way. Right. That's an excellent, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because unintended consequences are sometimes the most severe consequences of actions, especially around policies. You know, you have a certain yeah. policy and that's why you want to be able to, to track 
what's really happening, right? Which gets back to information collection, right? And I think right. just just in general, we have to uh, continue to educate the public about what information is out there, what information is being gathered about you. I mean, this uh, whole issue of deep fakes, which can mm -hmm. be very believable. I mean, and it's going to be it's going to be challenging. I mean, if you think back years ago, the whole blue check concept on Twitter was designed to show authenticity. It was designed to show, okay, we've checked this person out. They are legit. They're a real you know, journalist who's working on stuff. I get the idea behind that. Now I'm a media guy myself and I know that media can be biased and that's not, uh, I don't think that's hidden or unknown in the in the broader world out there so but anytime you kind of go down this road there are as you suggest unintended consequences right. so that's the purpose that's why you're trying to get all this feedback from all these different folks to be able to suss out the the sort of key directives that we need to be focusing on right that's absolutely right and and in part of that is understanding that we don't we don't know all the issues we know the issues from the lens of the companies that that, that are that are doing the work uh, but we're hoping that people will help us look at it for other angles and that ultimately we'll end up in a situation uh, that engenders more more trust. What And I'll tie this back to sort of the bigger organization, the Internet Infrastructure Coalition for a second, because, um, you know, the reason that we built our group is that we were seeing a bunch of laws that were going to have negative effects on their industry. And generally, that wasn't the goal. The goal right. was to solve problems, but they didn't even know that the companies existed. You know, so, you know, the, the, you, you don't you sort of don't know what happens in the pipes and the guts of the Internet. Right. It's all it all seems very opaque. Not that we can't be transparent about it, but if you don't know where to look, right. you're not going to find it. That's fascinating. Um, so so we wanted to sort of build a collective voice where we could not only say, hey, we're here and we want to have a seat at the table to try and help figure out those problems. But since we're doing that, we're, we're like engaging on policy issues and saying, hey, don't do it this way. Think about doing it this way. Uh, you know, we also need to take more responsibility and say, how can we if we've got everybody gathered in a single group, how can we use the power of that gathering to try and uh, see if we can fix some of these problems and engender more trust collectively uh, without having to put it through a policy process? Mm hmm. That's that's wonderful. And, and you're exactly right on the trust side. You know, in the security space, there's this whole concept now of zero trust architectures and things of this nature. And 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 really, it's kind of an ironic title. But the idea is that your system is designed to not trust anything until it's authenticated. And then once it's authenticated, OK, and then only for a little while. Right. That's one of the new tricks is to have these authorizations be ephemeral, where even if I am an executive and I have admin privileges, I log in and it's only for 30 minutes or an hour or something like that before it requires sort of re-authentication. And you always have to balance that out against usability and and annoyance and things of this nature. These are all real factors that come into play, right? My, back when I was getting into this industry, it was a long time ago before I before I started getting into to, to policy and industry coordination, I ran a web hosting company. And the systems used to be designed for redundancy. Now they're re designed for failure. You know, they used to be designed so that you had multiple ups. So if anyone failed, it would it would it would it would catch it. And it's it's different now. It's like you expect the failure. Hmm. You expect the failure, and you figure out how to make sure that you you've got that self healing system. Yeah. Uh, that that absorbs that and takes care of it. Yeah, uh, I love I, this. Yeah. Well, folks, tell you what, hop online ethicalwebdata.com that's ethicalwebdata.com we've been talking to christian dawson thank you so much for your time and good work keep up the great work thank you so much you bet we'll be right back do you own an annuity either fixed rate indexed or variable are you paying high fees and getting low returns if so Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. 
Call now. 800-245-1697. That's 800-245-1697. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-290-6705. That's 800-290-6705. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe $25,000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is a perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need $25,000, $50,000, or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-710-3739. That's 800-710-3739. NMLS 6606. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. If you served in the Marine Corps, by now you know about the contaminated water problem at Camp Lejeune. If you were stationed or worked at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you probably have a lot of questions. We have some answers. You could be entitled to compensation. Billions of dollars are being allocated to pay for damages to anyone stationed at Camp Lejeune during that time. Unfortunately, it appears that officials may have known the contaminated water problem existed and did little to protect their men. The Semper Fi Code was not honored. If you or someone in your family has developed a serious illness, including various forms of cancer, call this Camp Lejeune legal support line right now. You can't turn back the clock and change what happened, but you can certainly call right now and learn your rights as a Marine. Here's the number. Call 800-254-3218. 800-254-3218. That's 800-254-3218. Welcome back to Inside Analysis. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, welcome back here to Inside Analysis, talking all things standards today on the show. Very interesting stuff about the I2 Coalition. I think they're doing some fantastic work. And, you know, the joke about uh, standards, of course, is that the beautiful thing about them is there are so many of them. All right, it's a bit of an ironic joke point being you don't want lots of different standards. You want a handful of robust standards that everyone can rely on and that you can then use and take advantage of to do what you want to get done. And in the world of the interwebs, for example, HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, pretty important stuff, pretty good standard, been out there a long, long time. So that's a good one. My my business partner, Dr. Robin Bloor, once said that uh, there are two types of standards, the one agreed upon by the, the best and the brightest and the ones forced on people, right? So you can't have standards forced on you. I'm old enough to remember the whole WSDL concept, uh, right? So everyone ultimately wound up using REST, REST APIs, R-E-S-T APIs, but you were supposed to use SOAP. Back in the day, it was uh, they wanted you to use SOAP, the web consortium, W3, I think it is, they call themselves. They had said, no, we want you to use SOAP. Everyone said, eh, no, we'll use REST. Thanks anyway. So these standards sometimes can be 
promoted and then not adhered to. And sometimes they fade, of course, too, right? There are lots of standards out there. Look at ODBC and JDBC in the database world or connecting to databases. Uh, those standards have been around for a long time, but uh, it was a long, long time before anyone really did something to change all that. So some of these will stick around uh, a long time. And I guess what I wanted to talk about here in our last segment of the show today, or at least before the podcast bonus segment, is uh, my desire for standards in the marketing world. And I say that from a data perspective, primarily. Uh, I say that from the perspective of someone who is a digital marketer and wants to better understand what the numbers mean. And I say that because it's very difficult to tell from one platform to another what anything means, like views, for example. Uh, and with YouTube, you can get very granular details about when someone came, when they showed up, how long they stayed. Uh, LinkedIn has its own measurements for those kinds of things. It'll show you interesting stuff like uh, who who was on your article in terms of title and role and company size and things of this nature. Of course, they only go so far, but the point is they're all over the map in terms of how they actually count things. You know, in the internet uh, world, a lot of times we use that pixel. So when a pixel gets called by a server, we know, aha, someone opened the email. That's very standard, but it gets interpreted differently. And I think the real success story here is going to be when we imbue the importance of transparency in all of these reportings. So one story I tell to kind of make that point is we did a bunch of uh, Facebook Lives, I think it was, a number of years ago, and I did 10 of these interviews in a day, and the average one would get about 150 to 200 views and about 15 likes. Well, then two of them had 50,000 views, and I was like, wow, they went viral. So I went and told the client, hey, look at this, they went viral, and, and she kind of laughed and said, yeah, we threw some money at it. And that's what you do. You throw money at things, and not even that much money. Like on Twitter, 10 bucks can go a long way in terms of getting you numbers that look good. Oh, wow, look, 2,000 people saw this tweet. Did they? Did 2,000 people really see that tweet? I mean, my point is that there is a measurement by which that is determined. And, of course, the cool thing with Twitter recently is that Elon Musk open-sourced the algorithm. So that's a pretty cool deal. So now you can understand. You can actually look into it to understand how this thing operates. Now, I don't know if he open-sourced everything, but he certainly open-sourced a big chunk of it. I write a monster thread on Twitter all about that. Well, the beautiful thing is when you make something transparent, it's like open-source technology. I just talked to a company today, a very interesting company, Praxy Data. Uh, very cool stuff. The uh, the founder, AA, is uh, his email address, AA at Praxy Data. Um, and he told me some very interesting things about work that they've done, but they're open source. Uh, he actually was the guy at Hortonworks who worked on Atlas, which was the, the big metadata management tool. They're doing a sort of metadata abstraction layer, but he's an open source guy and he's a big fan of Apache. And so am I, the Apache Software Foundation. Open source software development has absolutely fundamentally taken over how enterprise software gets made. And that is so cool. It's just an amazing transformation that we've undergone here in just a handful of years so back when i first started looking into open source it was really 2005 so okay that's 18 years in 18 years the the uh, enterprise software industry has pivoted almost entirely to focus on open source that's a huge. Uh, some of you may know I have a website inside-opensource.org. I invite everyone to go there and check that out. It is driven by our very own Media Lens, and uh, Media Lens is a content aggregator that we built a number of years ago. It pings the Twitter API, it pings RSS feeds, and then you give it hashtags and keywords to monitor. And then over time, what it does is it goes out to these APIs and it finds anyone you're following who tweeted with those hashtags or words with a URL, meaning an article that they're sharing, and it it uh, parses the article, it grabs the content, it scrapes the content from that page and persists it into your own database. I say this just to, to kind of promote the product, but to promote the idea of openness, like we want to be able to see all this data. Well. In the standards world, I think this is really important in the marketing universe because I want some some understanding. Twitter is giving it, like I said, 
transparency. I want some understanding of what these freaking numbers mean. What does it actually mean? There are lots of companies that have come along to try to crack that nut. There was one Datorama that got bought by Salesforce. So I haven't taken a briefing in a while, but that was one of the most impressive tools that I've seen for making sense of marketing data. And so I'm throwing this out on a standard show because I'm hoping that some intelligent marketing person hears me and says, you know, that's a good idea. And we really should push for more transparency and reporting and how they report. So what is the algorithm? Now, there's always been this concern in the business that, oh, if we tell them how it's done, everyone's going to game the system. Everyone already games the system, but you have to regame the system and regame the system again and so on and so forth. And it gets very frustrating and very time consuming. So, I, again, I just throw this call out to the world and suggest, please, people who create marketing software, let's try to get more transparent about the reporting mechanisms in then and, and offer some insights about that. Offer some insights about why these numbers may be higher than for that tool or this tool, et cetera. I think transparency is going to help us all see the world better, more effectively, and that's just going to boost business for everyone. But that is my opinion, and you've been listening to Inside Analysis. Logic Radio, the legends you love and the best talk. Progressive talk in Southern California. We listen to you all the time. This segment sponsored by the generous support of the Dream Team. Looking for the keys to something bigger and better? Downsizing or relocating to the perfect spot? Oscar Ramirez from Century 21 Lois Lauer Real Estate and Matt Flores from Secure Choice Lending are here to help you sell or buy with their trusted and experienced knowledge and advice. People are calling Oscar and Matt at 951-751-3249. That's 951-751-3249. Real estate and loan advisors Oscar and Matt can give you a 
no-cost consultation, you don't have to buy anything. Matt and Oscar can help you figure your way through the complicated real estate market. Email Oscar at LoisLauer.com or on Instagram at Oscar Ramirez Garcia and Matt Flores at SecureChoiceLending.com. Don't let today's real estate pitfalls stop you from dreaming. Make your new home dreams come true. DRE number 0207-0344. Se habla espanol. Del Wamsley here. The first thing you're going to have to learn is that until you stop expecting our politicians or anyone else to change your life, your life isn't going to change. The only person who can change your life is you, but you need to know how. Listen to my show, the Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins, right here on KCAA, now broadcasting on 1050 AM and 106.5 FM, the stations that leave no listener behind. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E-B like boy, O, then continue with the word T and then the word club. The complete website is TeheboTeaClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TeheboTeaClub.com. With 60 years of fascinating facts, this is The Man from Yesterday. Back in time we go to this time in 1977, Playing at the movies, a thriller called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane with Jodie Foster and Martin Sheen. Academy Award nominee Jodie Foster, Martin Sheen, Alexis Smith. I want to know what's been happening here in this house. I want to know what happened here today! And from about this time in 1957, look for David Niven in a new movie called The Little Hut with Ava Gardner and Stuart Granger. David, one always hears about an actor or an actress's life. Is it a phony life? I mean, no, it's absolutely what you make it. I mean, if you want to be phony, yes, of course it can be phony. If you want to rush around and look for people to press books in your face so you can sign them. And from this time in 1974, let's face it, no one shows a better curtain than Carol Merrill. She's been a model with Let's Make a Deal for about 11 years now. These people, dressed as they are, come from all over the United States to make deals here in the marketplace of America. Let's make a deal. And now, here's America's top trader, TV's big dealer, Monty Hall. It's behind the curtain where Carol is standing, and I guess we should show you a little bit of what's back there. With more at manfromyesterday.com. It's time to make the Tri-City Center in Redlands a regular part of your weekly shopping experience. Tri-City is home to a wide assortment of quality businesses, including the all-new Ocean Aquatics. Check out their variety of exotic tropical fish along with fish food, accessories, and tanks of all shapes and sizes. The Tri-City Center is located just off of Alabama in the Tennessee exits in Redlands. Visit the Tri-City Center today and find out why it's called the Mall with a Heart. If you're looking for a full or part-time sales position and you have radio, TV, or print media experience, KCAA has a great opportunity waiting for you that pays the highest commissions in the market. If you're interested in a sales position with us, email CEO at KCAARadio.com. KCAA. America exists today as a bizarre anomaly. We profess to be an electoral democracy, yet we are ruled by a governmental plutocracy. One especially gross example of this incongruity is the overwhelming power of big money over the people's will. By a wide margin, Americans of all political stripes want to ban the distorting force of huge electoral campaign donations by favor-seeking corporations and ultra-rich elites. Yet, nothing. National and state lawmakers take the plutocratic money and promptly bury democratic reforms that would stop the gusher of corrupt cash. An analysis of donations in this year's congressional races shows that this plutocratic perversion of our politics and government has reached absurd levels. 
Historian Nancy McLean and public interest advocate Frank Clemente have documented that the two main super PACs trying to put Republicans in Congress got about half of their $188 million election fund from just 27 billionaires. Also, a corporate front that backs GOP candidates, Club for Growth, got nearly $35 million from only three billionaires. Thanks to years of congressional stonewalling and the steady partisan stacking of our top courts with corporate ideologues, there is essentially no limits on this purchase of lawmakers. Indeed, the biggest donors are even allowed to undermine democracy in secret, not revealing their identity. Lawmakers elected with this money not only support the billionaire's special interest agenda, which the people don't want, but also are fierce opponents of any reforms to increase voter participation in our governing process, which people do want. This is Jim Hightower saying that's why, for example, efforts to guarantee every eligible American a constitutional right to vote have not moved forward in Congress, even though the great majority of people favor it. You're listening to KCAA Loma Linda at 106.5 FM, K293CF, Moreno Valley. NBC News Radio. I'm Chris Caraggio. Police in Alabama say four people are dead and more than two dozen injured after an overnight mass shooting at a Sweet 16 birthday party. 28 individuals.